what are you worth? What do you deserve? What do you want? We do not take the time to sit down and think about who our ideal partner is enough. Namaste and welcome. I'm Bettina Blumenthal and you're listening to the Soul Compass Podcast. I'm here to help you find your inner calm and deepen your self-discovery journey. Take this moment and focus on yourself, for your mental health, your ability to find ease in your everyday life, and your emotional well-being. It is so important that you nourish yourself not only physically, but also emotionally and mentally. Here at Soul Compass, you'll learn practical tips from experts who will leave you with a sharper focus and a renewed commitment to yourself. Have you ever wondered how much sex is healthy to have in a relationship? I know, you're not the only one that has that question. As you know, we are a self-discovery podcast, and oftentimes on the self-discovery journey, it can be solo when we're meditating, doing our personal yoga practice, or whatever that looks like for you. But relationships, especially romantic relationships, play a huge role in our mental and emotional well-being. Today, we get to pick the brain of a psychotherapist and therapeutic relationship coach. She is recognized as one of the freshest voices on modern and millennial relationships. Her mission? To help people have better sex, relationships, and taking care of their mental health. Today we cover a variety of topics, from what to look out for when you're starting out in a new relationship, to being a new parent, and how to consciously manage your relationship, to polyamorous relationships and hey, do they really work? To the Me Too movement and the pros and the cons that came around sexuality. I am so honored to welcome the lovely Rachel Wright. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is just the best. I love talking with you. I know, likewise. And it's so funny because I've had a lot of the doves on the podcast so far and welcome to another dove alexis shout out to dovetail summit because she has connected us with some incredible women and i'm just fascinated with what you're doing rachel i think that you're spreading so much light on a topic that is really uncomfortable for people to talk about a lot which i mean relationships are one thing but also sex and being millennials and you know, being curious about our sexuality is such a huge part of, I mean, just growing up. (laughs) Seriously. And it's so crazy that we're all here because of sex. And yet we don't talk about it. We're all here because two people got it on. That's one of the only things that we all have in common, that and breathing oxygen. And yet it's such a weird thing that we don't talk about it. And same thing with relationships. It's commonplace to kind of talk with your girlfriends about it, but it's yet not commonplace to go seek out tools and resources and help. It's like, we have to wait until something is wrong. It's crazy. It's like waiting until a car is broken to go take it in for a service. Like, no, we get our oil changed. So it doesn't break. 
not wait until it doesn't work. And then we're like, oh, well, I guess I don't have a car now. It's so true. And it's one of those things that we think maybe should just come naturally to us. Yet I know I find myself at times not wanting to share things, even with my girlfriends, because I'm like, oh, is that kind of weird? Is that a little taboo? Like, what are they going to think of me? Do they do this too? And then I just, you keep everything inside. Exactly. And that's because it doesn't come naturally to us. Communication skills and all of those things, they're learned. It's just like learning how to work out your arms in a way that doesn't hurt your arms, right? Like if you just walk into a gym and don't know what's going on and pick up a hundred pound weights and try to do squats, you're going to hurt yourself. Same thing goes with communication. We need to learn how to do it so that it's best done and that we're not hurting ourselves and other people. What led you down the road to specialize in relationships and sex therapy? (laughs) To take a really long story and to condense it, I was put in therapy and by put, I mean like literally put in therapy when I was 14 and a half, almost 15. My parents were like, she's dating an older guy. What's going on? What are, you know, there must be something wrong. Let's send her to therapy. And I left that day saying, I want to do what this woman does. I had never in my life felt as understood and heard. And I left the office that day with tools and things that I wanted to change and an acceptance of myself that I had never felt before. And three years later, my parents got divorced. I watched them essentially self-sabotage their relationship frankly, because they didn't have the tools to do it. And my dad got to the point where he was like, I cannot learn anything anymore. He got to this, like, I'm too old to learn new things state, which is total BS, but it is what it is. And that was his experience. The thing that he said was, I can't change anymore for you to my mom. Instead of saying, oh, okay, I can learn new skills. He felt like it was changing who he was. I watched this happen, you know, as a 17, 18, 19 year old. And it's a really unique experience to watch as a, a mini adult. Because you can understand at that point. Yes. Yeah. And I had had a relationship already. Like I, I knew more about relationships than let's say if I was seven and I'm like, oh, mommy and daddy just don't get along anymore. And I was watching their communication just tank. And I thought to myself, like, I learned in therapy how to talk to my boyfriend and I'm 17. What's going on? So I immediately knew I started reading all of these books on relationships and communication. And like, that was it. I was down the path. I was so interested in why we did the things we do, especially in terms of sex and relationships and why my family was so open to talking about things like sex. My mom took me to a a mommy and me sex class when I was nine. And it was like a group of moms and their daughters. And we learned all about all these things. And my friends in high school were like, I don't know what that is. What, what is that? And I was the one that they would go to. And it's not like I was in some hippie family where like everyone walked around nude and like there were orgies at my house. Like there was nothing like off going on. It was a very like nice sex educator course. And I just had an open dialogue and it was mind boggling to me that my friends who were doing some of these things didn't even know what they were 
or what the consequences were or how to do them for pleasure and not just how not to do things, like how not to get pregnant or how not to get an STD. It was like, how do I enjoy this? Yeah, because there's so much fear, I think, at that age around sex, depending on how you are educated. Especially with millennials. And I grew up in a household that wasn't really talked about. I remember my dad sat me down. I had my first boyfriend, like a serious boyfriend, when I was 14. And I remember he sat me down. He's like, we're going to have the birds and the bees chat, Bettina. (laughs) Okay, dad. (laughs) And we sit down. I could see it now, like looking back, like he was embarrassed to have that conversation. Although I feel like that would have been a better conversation for my mom probably to have with me. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating. But it's one of those things that like, even in schools now, I don't know how it is in the U.S., at this point, but in Toronto, they were becoming a lot more progressive in terms of sexual education in schools. And we just got a lot of changes based on our, I believe it was like our province premiere. I'm so bad with politics. You can't even ask me Canadian <laughs> politics. It's so bad. I'm in a, I'm in a bubble, guys. Please don't judge me. Uh, but anyways, they ended up changing all of the guidelines around sex education. And a lot oh, of the teachers awesome. especially were really upset because it was becoming more progressive. Mm. And now it's like been ripped away. Yeah, it's really messed up. So the reason why I mentioned especially with millennials is we're this post-AIDS crisis generation. And so what happens when there's a crisis is we all overcorrect, right? So we went from like no sex education to the AIDS boom and crisis happened. And then all sex education became abstinence and the line in Mean Girls. Like if you have sex, you will get an STD and die. With that mentality, we have this generation full of women who are not sure if they've even had an orgasm before because they can't relax their mind enough to orgasm because they're like, am I getting AIDS right now? Am I going to get pregnant? Is the condom breaking? Oh, that felt weird. Is that supposed to feel weird? And we have nowhere to go with these questions. And the older we get, the more shame there is in our culture of then coming back and saying, hey, I'm 32 and don't know how to masturbate. Or I'm 31. Have I had an orgasm? I don't know. And that's a big part of what lights a fire under my ass every day is really helping people be happy in their relationships, but more importantly, and what has to come first is be happy in their own skin and to feel comfortable just being, whether that includes masturbation or sex with somebody else, it doesn't matter. But the the level of self-love that needs to be there, like every woman, we need to know the anatomy of what's going on. I run this program called Ladies and Libidos. And whenever we go through the anatomy lesson, I teach that the clitoris is shaped like a horseshoe. And 90% of the women in the group, we're all on Zoom, right? Their faces are like, what? Their jaws drop. They're so confused. Right. They're like, what do you mean? It's like a little button at the top of my situation. Like, what do you mean it's a horseshoe? And we go through the diagram and they're like, Oh my gosh. And these are women, you know, as young as 20, all the way up until we had like a 74 year old in one of the groups. I love it. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing. It's my favorite. But for a 74 year old woman to not know what 
the anatomy of her own body is. Could you imagine if we're like, well, I have this like hand, but I'm not really sure how my fingers work. They just, they're like there, but you know, I don't really, it, it's crazy. It it's is absolutely so crazy. wild. And 74 years. That's a long time to not know what's going on in your goods. Exactly. She came back actually the next week and she was like, this changed everything. <laughs> and that's amazing. You know, it's never too late. And that's the thing is there's no shame. That's something I talk about all the time is we don't know what we don't know. So don't blame yourself for not knowing these things. Yeah. I want to bring up, because you mentioned the word shame, and I do feel like there's a lot of shame around sexuality. I'm just curious to know, well, just your thoughts around that. And if someone were to come with you with that concern, or maybe you just recognize that in someone, like, how do you go about that? So the first thing is really looking at where it came from. And usually it's this assumption of, well, we didn't talk about it. So therefore there's something wrong with it. You know, sometimes there's trauma that's associated or there was an assault and then that shame developed because of that event. Or when they were young, you know, I, I had a client once whose mom flat out told her, and she told me I can use this story on things, but her mom flat out told her, if you have sex, you will be a slut and the guy will be a king. She was nine years old when her mom told her this. Wow. And so for her whole life, up until we started working together, she had this idea that if she had sex, including then with her now husband, that she would be a slut and he would be a king. Wow. And she didn't realize that that one conversation had imprinted so deeply in her mind. It was presenting as low libido. Oh, I just don't like sex that much. I'm not really into it. And then when we dug deep underneath, we uncovered this memory and she was like, holy moly, I have this belief that if I have sex, I'm a slut. Wow. And that's so deep rooted. Yeah. I mean, we have to cover that up as a coping mechanism, right? At nine years old, you, we don't have the brain capacity to know what to do with that type of information. No. And I feel like that is probably before you even start exploring with your sexuality, really? Well, depending. Yes and no. So crazy, crazy statistic. The average age that a human being, male or female, starts masturbating is 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> I shit you not. <laughs> 18 months old. 18 months. And it's because it's really comforting. Just like putting your hands down your pants kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, So there's no ejaculation. There's no climax. But what happens is, and this leads to the shame, same thing, is the parents will say, hey, you, James, get your hands out of your pants. And we get shamed for it. Instead of, hey, James, we're at the grocery store. <laughs> so <laughs> while we're in public, we don't have our hands in our pants. If you want to do that when we're at home and you're in your room, cool, go for it. Have fun all day. But at the grocery store, like, you know, we also don't take off our clothes. Like it's the same thing. But instead, as adults, we rope it in because we're so uncomfortable. 
and we're like, no, get your hands out of your pants. And it's the snap. And then that memory is associated, right? Oh, if I touch myself, someone will get mad at me. Therefore, that's a bad thing to do. Instead of understanding that it's a situational thing and that it's actually a really normal thing to do and a healthy thing to do, but not in the middle of the grocery store. Yeah, well, that's actually really good because I know we have listeners that are moms, uh, especially. And so knowing something like that, I'm sure is going to change that energetic pattern because I know we we all hold on to energy from our parents and whatnot. So that would be a game changer. Totally. And, and having that, you know, if they're not capable of, if a child's 18 months old, of course, you're not going to have a conversation with them. They can't really have a conversation with you yet, but knowing that that is a normal self-soothing thing, just as they would rub their head, just as they would rub their leg, they have no meaning to their body parts at 18 months old. They are touching a part of their body that is soothing part of their brain. And whether that is their penis or their thigh or their foot, it really doesn't make a difference to them. They just want to feel comfy. It's so true. And, and also, I wanted to go back to your comment about what the mother had said to your client, because I, I think that a lot of, whether it's your mom telling you or on the playground, if you were young and exploring and you might have been the girl that kissed a boy or maybe they touched your boobs and you're young and I think you're just curious at that age, the man is technically, like you said, the king. And the women are shamed. They're the sluts. I saw it in my playground. Yep, I did too. And it's something I think that you laugh now as an adult, but it's something that, that lives in us because we don't know how to process it. Exactly. And so the best thing that you know we can do as parents is really not enforce that. So if the kids are going to enforce it, which until our whole society shifts with gender and all of that, which is a much bigger thing. We can only control what goes on in, in our home, right? So the best thing to do is to not reinforce that at home and to remind, especially your daughters around this, like there is a healthy sexual exploration and talking about boundaries, right? And talking about not doing things before you're ready and saying no. And same thing for boys, like how to say no or how to accept a no if you hear a no, and that that's not a personal slight against you. There's so much that we just kind of say, oh, well, that's how it is. That's how the world is. And we kind of toss our hands up and go along with it. But we can change that for our kids. And if every parent does that, then all of a sudden we have this new generation that's a little bit better than we were. And then they can make it a little bit better than they were when they have kids. And hopefully, you know, when you and I are long gone, these generations don't have the slut king dynamic going on. Yeah, I really hope that goes away. (laughs) Right? I know. It's the worst. It's the worst. Like, I really hope if I do have children at some point that that's just done. Like, I I would love for that to be over. And that's all we can do is these little things that make a giant impact. And kids talk, like you were saying, right? So I'm not a parent yet either, but I say we, because, you know, hopefully one day we do have kids. And if we as people and we as parents can help our kids to understand it, then that kid is going to talk to another kid on the playground and say, well, hey, don't call her that. That's not what she's doing. 
And that ripples out just like the negativity ripples out the ripple effect that we can have when we educate our kids in a way that's empowering and in a way that they can stand up for themselves and explore themselves and not shame themselves or other people that will help their friends and then their friends and their friends. And it just goes and goes and goes and goes. Absolutely. And I wanted to touch on the communication piece because I do find even when you are in a relationship and you pointed it out, it's like, oh, maybe there's a boundary or maybe you don't know how to communicate something. And then as a woman, you're like, oh, but I don't want the guy not to like me, but you're using your sexuality for a man to like you. But like, how do you properly communicate that, especially if you're in a situation that maybe you're not ready to step forward in that? So first and foremost, educating our young people how to say no and how to do it in a way that is respectful and not then shaming the other person for asking, right? So whether you're 14 or 24 or 34 or 44, if somebody propositions a sexual activity, whether it's a kiss or you know actual intercourse, learning how to say no in a way that isn't like, oh, no, you disgusting person. Why would you ask me for that? Right. Because then we're just shaming them and it makes them not want to ask. So if we can say no in a way that is no, thanks. I'd really like to do this with you, whether that is going to the movie or whether that is, Hey, you know, I'd really like to make out with you and I'm all for hand stuff tonight, but like anything else, I'm, I'm not ready for that yet. Just wanted to let you know. Like, say you did have someone who was like, Oh no, I don't. Like, that's gross. Why don't I want to do that? You can't control that response, right? So how do you deal with that if someone were to say that to you? Well, first and foremost, understanding that it probably has nothing to do with you and everything to do with their past experiences. If they think that sex is gross and you ask them if they want to have sex, that has nothing to do with you. That's their preconceived stuff. And also knowing that You know, we live in a day and age now where finally we're having more conversations around consent and things like that. But women, especially, we have to speak up and say yes as often as we say no. And that's something that, again, we don't teach. I think back to the story that came out, I think it was last year or two years ago with Aziz Ansari, the comedian. You know, this woman who was out on a date with him was like, My body language said that I didn't want to do this, but He kept doing it and he's an asshole. As much as, yes, there were things in that story that I'm sure that he will learn from and could do differently 100%, you cannot rely on somebody to read your body language. It's called body language, but like really it's not a language. We're, We're not mind readers. We need to use our words. So especially being in that position of, you know, in the story, she, I believe was, performing oral sex on him. That guy's mind, any man who's receiving oral sex is their mind is so filled with happy hormones at that point that they are not looking to be like, is she, is she uncomfortable? Is she not wanting to do? They're just like, I'm so happy this is happening right now. They're just so happy that it's happening. They go into sexual being mode. 
So if you want to be done, if you don't want it to continue, if you don't like, if he grabs the back of your head or does something that feels gross to you or just that you don't like, you have every right to stop and say, I'm done. I don't like that. Not into it. Or ask, I'd like to continue this, but can you not touch my head? Or, you know, can we slow down? I'd like to take a break. Like you, you have every right to do this, but making a face that's uncomfortable or trying to like turn your body away. And if any men are listening, like I'm going to generalize here. So I'm sorry for a second, but men are like the worst. None of us are good mind readers. Men are like the worst. (laughs) They need such clear cut directions. Like (laughs) turn right at the corner of this. If you're like, well, walk out like a few blocks and then you're going to turn right near the flower store. They're like, okay, but what street is it? They need clear cut direction in our relationships too. Even when it comes to not sex, when we need something from our male partners, we need to be very explicit with what we need. Otherwise we're not going to get it. Yeah. Well, I guess it comes from maybe age, but also just like being comfortable with yourself a little bit more because I I even found like as I've gotten older it's become easier to communicate to my partners but I do notice when I struggle like it's I definitely do struggle in that department and I wanted to actually ask you because as you know like I think it was mostly 2018 the Me Too movement kind of just blew up I'm just curious to know your thoughts more so on how it affected the sexuality of the population because i mean there are so many positive things that have come from it like and women having a voice but i'm just curious to know on the other side of it circumstances that might have arose that if it that didn't come to fruition so all in all very positive like overarching we needed it to happen there are some really horrible men who are finally, you know, behind bars or getting called out for manipulation. I think it's incredibly important and beautiful and wonderful. And <laughs> it's created challenges for especially younger men. So my brother is 25 and he's dating. And it is a very confusing time for a 25-year-old heterosexual cisgender male to be dating. He's like, can I approach a woman at a bar? Is that too forward? Am I allowed to lean in for a kiss? Is she going to feel pressured? All of these thoughts go through his mind. And while it's better that the thoughts are there than just assuming that like she wants it, he never thought she just wanted it before 2018. So I think that the guys out there that are really good men some of them are now overthinking things a bit. Because they are good. Right. Yeah. They're like, I'm good. So like, how do I be like gooder? (laughs) It's difficult in that way. And again, it comes back to the communication piece, which we don't learn how to do. And that's what I continue to tell him is, you know, just ask. It is just as romantic to say, hey, can I kiss you now? Yeah, that is so romantic. Right? Like consent is sexy. I would love it if a man said, can I kiss you right now? Yes. That is better than physically leaning in to then where she feels like you're attacking, not actually attacking, but like physically in her bubble. 
And you think about that in each context, like, can I kiss your belly button now? Can I take your pants off? You're like, oh my God, this is so hot. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. And then you have that ability to say, no, let's stop it here, but let's continue to make out on my couch because that's super hot. Yeah. That's where men can find that middle ground is you can still be, if you still want to be that instigator, that kind of like 1950s more archetype of like the the man instigating the physical you can still do that but within the respect and awareness of consent and what if you're not really comfortable communicating that <sighs> therapy <laughs> amen sister <laughs> let's say you're listening and you're like oh my gosh i could never say no or it's so hard for me to say no First of all, there's a great book. It's called The Disease to Please. And it totally changed my life. I read it when I was 19 years old. And it, I've read it nine times because at each phase of you know my life, and I think this is with everybody, we have new things that we're now pleasing for. So I've been married for a while now. I don't feel sexually obligated with my husband. And it's easier to say no than when I was dating. But I also please in different ways now. So each time I read it, I get something different from it. But when it's hard for us to say no, we're trying to anger proof our relationships. We're trying to create this ease and not have friction. And at the end of the day, friction is what helps us grow. We cannot grow without friction. And that's as individuals, that's in relationships, that's at all. Literally, we need tension and friction to grow. You think about like an egg cracking with a chicken, it has to physically like crack out and break the egg to be born or a baby being born. It has to pop through in the water. Like everything is this tension and friction to grow. So if you're having that feeling of, uh-oh, what if I say no and this happens? I encourage you to play that out in your head. And what happens? Like, what is your worst case scenario here? Is it that he gets upset and walks away? Because then that's not your dude or your woman. Yes. Right? Like, if, if somebody is seriously going to say, oh, you don't want to have sex with me on our third date, I'm angry now. Okay, well, like, fuck you. No, like you don't want to be with that person anyway. So play out in your head, like what is it about saying no that you're afraid of? What is uncomfortable about it? And if it's something that you feel you cannot get over by yourself, that is what therapy is for. Because there's something laying underneath all of that that we need to uncover, just like that memory of my client with her mom. There's something in there that's just too deep to access by yourself. You need the, the support to kind of dig into the layers. Yeah, and I love that. And even touching on, like you were saying, well, if this person gets mad, man or woman, he's not your dude or your woman. But I remember being in a relationship in my early 20s and the best piece of advice I got, every time I would bring something up to my boyfriend at the time, he would always turn it around and he'd get mad at me and then threaten to break up with me. I had so many relationships like that too. Yeah. And so the piece of advice I got, 
And because I know that there's still people that struggle with that. And I was so afraid of losing this person because he was just, I was infatuated with him. Mm-hmm. But he, I remember my cousin said to me, she said, Vitina, if someone is that easily and willing to give you up, that person's not for you. Yep. Game changer. What are you worth? What do you deserve? What do you want? I know that we don't take the time, male, female, doesn't matter gender. We do not take the time to sit down and think about who our ideal partner is enough. We really don't. I also was in so many relationships like that. I had a guy once ask me to cover his rent. And if I didn't cover his rent, then he was going to break up with me. Oh my goodness. What did you do? Uh, Well, (laughs) fun story. I paid his rent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. See, so there's progress is possible, people. I'm living proof. It went on for like six months. I didn't pay it every six, like the whole time, but he knew he had me eating out of the palm of his hand. I was 22 at the time and he was 35. Now I look back and I think, what in the world was a 35-year-old? First of all, what did he have in common with a 22-year-old? Second of all, in what world does a 22-year-old have more money and is more financially stable than a 35-year-old? Oh my gosh, so true. But hindsight is 2020. And so part of the work I've had to do, and maybe this resonates with you know you listening, is forgiving our younger selves. And like you said, so beautifully sending love to her because that girl was doing the best she could. She didn't know any better. We live and learn it like literally. And hopefully hearing conversations like this can prevent more of those things happening. But if it's happened already, learn from it and forgive yourself and love on yourself. Don't beat yourself up. There's literally no positive outcome of you beating yourself up. Research shows it. There was a new study. It came out like maybe eight months ago now. I'm really bad with time now. It was a study that proved that quote unquote tough love, it just doesn't work. And so we think about that the way we talk to ourselves because we're kind of the most rude to ourselves than we are to anybody else. Like the way we talk to ourselves, we would never talk to our girlfriends like that. No, ever. I wouldn't have any friends. Exactly. They'd be like, wow, she's a real bitch. But the way that we talk to ourselves is so horrible sometimes. And with the research showing that when other people doing it to us, that has no effect, talking to ourselves that way has like extra no effect. (laughs) It's so true. And I wanted to ask you because I struggle with this. You said that we need to be defining our partner getting clear on who our partner is or, or manifest, maybe manifesting whoever that is. I get a little scared to do it because I don't want to be then looking at the checklist of like, what, oh, does this person meet this and this and this criteria? Because I've been there. But then there are some non-negotiables. So how do you draw that fine line of like having your list of this ideal partner, but maybe not being attached to everything? So first and foremost, make a list of those non-negotiables. The things that are so black and white, there are not a lot of black and white things in life. Most of the time we live in the gray, right? Because people change. If you want a brunette, the guy's hair is going to turn gray at the end of the day. So like, who cares? Whatever. He cannot be abusive. 
Great non-negotiable. And there, there are other things that for some people, it may be religion, for some people, it's spirituality, for some people, it's being open to certain things. You know, for some people, if they're polyamorous, then they need a partner who's also of that same mentality. Like there are some things that are just non-negotiable period, end of story. For me, I work a lot in the LGBTQ community. So like a non-negotiable would be somebody, like if they had any hate in them towards anyone, No, I don't care if you meet every other criteria, you're out. So making yourself write down those are the best first place to start. What I would encourage you to include on that list is what are the non-negotiables of how you want to feel around your partner? That's such a good one. We don't focus on our feet, like how we want to feel, even just like in our desires in our everyday life. Like with our food. Yeah. How do you want to feel when you eat? I want to feel freaking awesome. So it's like, oh, maybe I won't have the pizza because I feel like ass afterwards, right? Like, <laughs> It's so true, but pizza is so good. <laughs> right. And then we can make that conscious decision of like, okay, so I'm going to feel crappy after I eat this, but I know that. It's the same thing with a one night stand. If you want to go out and have a lovely evening with a guy who you never talk to again, cool. Just know that going in. Like (laughs) that's your intention and then great, but it's all about that. How do I want to feel? And for me, I know that my husband, Kyle, it took me so off guard because all of the things that I thought were my ideal person in terms of looks and their upbringing and all these things that typically would go on this list that we make, he didn't meet any of those, any of them, but he fell into the, like the non-negotiables were, were there. And he made me feel like the best version of myself. And he made me feel that I could do anything and that I was the most important person to him when it was just him and me. And that was so much more powerful than, well, I thought I really wanted darker hair. Before we actually connected, I put out a post on the Wonderful Soul Instagram and I was asking the audience if they had any relationships or sex questions. So would you mind if we just did like a little quick Q&A? Of course. I love this. I love being put on the spot. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So I categorize them because that's what I do in life. Uh, We're going to start with relationships. Excellent. So you kind of already touched on this, but how important are common life values when starting a new relationship? Very, 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 very important. (laughs) So there is something called shared meaning. John and Julie Gottman, if you have not read anything from them, they are like the gold standard of relationship research, at least here in the US. I know that they're all over Canada too. They have discovered that one of the things that makes relationships super successful is having clarity around the meaning of things in your life. So what does money mean to you? What does a home mean to you? Because for some people, money means freedom. For other people, money means opulence. For other people, it's security. We all have different meanings that we apply to tangible things and what family means and all these things. So having conversations around those and making sure that they align is huge. How early in the relationship would you start talking about those things? 
sometimes you can do it on a first date. You don't necessarily have to do a deep dive into this person's psyche on the first date, but even asking the question of, let's say family is a huge non-negotiable for you. Asking a question like, tell me about your family, right? Leaving it open-ended. You're not asking a closed-ended, do you like your family? Yes or no. (laughs) Do you talk to your family? Yes or no. Because that person may not be in contact with their family, but they may value family and view it similarly to you. Leaving the question open-ended and just tell me about blah, or tell me about your aspirations. Tell me about your spirituality. Like that's a great format of asking questions. That's such good advice. So next question is, what are the red flags to look out for when getting into a new relationship? (sighs) So it's going to vary from person to person. So what I would get clear on is what are the things that would be red flags for you? And really take some time to ask yourself that. I would say if somebody seems very controlling, if somebody seems very like cutting you down or dismissive or mean, huge red flag. The controlling piece, that's a big one because it gets worse over time. So people who are controlling at the beginning they do not get better. That is not a thing that happens. They will get more and more controlling throughout the relationship. So that would be like the one objective red flag, I would say like universally. The rest can be kind of subjective. Yeah, okay. How much do love languages impact the relationship, especially when you and your partner have different love languages? Hugely. In fact, in our program, Revive Your Relationship, it's a whole module. They really impact because if I'm speaking Chinese and you're speaking Hebrew, we are not going to understand each other. And love languages are the same way. So a couple will come in and say, you know, my husband never shows me love. And the husband's like, no, my wife never shows me love. And they're both doing the things that are within their love language and it's not being interpreted as the act of love. So figuring out what they are and what your partner wants to see from you is incredibly helpful. And actually you made a comment about this when your dad said, I, I don't want kind of like, I don't want to change or like, I feel like I'm changing who I am. When you don't naturally love, say touch and your partner, their love language is touch, that might be really difficult. Yeah. And you got to figure that out. And so asking questions like, my love language is touch. You don't like it when I touch you if we're not being intimate. I need to find a middle ground. Otherwise, I don't feel like you love me. Where is somewhere we can start to find this middle ground? And I like to think about it as a Venn diagram. So like if you're this circle and your partner's this circle, there's this little part where they overlap. And sometimes it's a lot of overlap. And sometimes it's just like a teeny tiny little sliver in the middle, but there is some overlap. And so maybe that's, you know, touching your head at night or putting a hand on your back. Like it could be something small or putting your feet on your partner's lap on the couch right? Like you can figure out something, but it's really about expressing why 
that is so important to you for your partner to understand. And that will motivate them. If they want to make it work, that will motivate them to do it. Yeah. And I think that, especially with touch, I know that is actually my love language. Like my number one is definitely touch. And even just as simply if my partner puts their hand on my lower back and if we're out or at a party or at home, like, and I'm cooking or something, like putting the hand on the lower back just gives me some sort of energetic connection. Yes. I'm the same way. How do you encourage your partner to communicate their feelings more? Tell them why it's important for them to communicate their feelings more. Literally, it's that simple. A lot of times when I ask that question, well, why is it important for you, for your partner to communicate their feelings? I get this blank stare back like, I don't know. I just want them to. <laughs> that, that's not going to motivate anybody, right? Like if you said, hey, Rachel, come to Canada right now. And I said, okay, why? And you're like, I, I don't know. Why would I come? That's very confusing. Fair. I love that. You need to look within first and then communicate that why. So the next section we're going to cover is relationships and parenting because we do have some mamas. Being new parents, how can we consciously manage our relationship, especially as a mother who is more in charge of feeding and caring for the baby? So we actually have a free tool. Um, and I know you're going to link to the vault. This tool is in there. It's called our family meeting. And Kyle and I created this long before we even had our business. And it ended up being one of our first tools that we gave out because it works so well for us. It is really hard whenever a transition happens in a relationship, whether it is a child or a new job or a move. And I know that children are the ultimate, so I'm not in any way trying to compare like a new job to having a baby, but any sort of transition is going to cause a new thing and a new scheduling situation. So the family meeting basically has you go and sit down with your partner every single week and say, okay, part of it is when is the time that we're going to connect? Who's doing what feeding what day? How is this happening on this day? And figuring out those things ahead of time so that you can as best as you can with a newborn, have your week set up to know that you're going to have these touch points and that this is when you're in charge. This is when he's in charge. This is when you're napping. This is when he gets to sleep. Right. And figuring out all those things. So it's not just taking on each day, like, okay, well, hopefully we'll talk today. That's honestly how we approach many things, especially with kids. As moms, you got to remember that you come first. If you're not putting yourself first, there is nothing left for your child. So fill up your gas tank and use that overflow to give to your baby. And another question from a, well, almost new mom, how do you keep your identity as an individual when a baby comes? And how do you make sure your partner and you maintain identity as a couple beyond being a mom and dad when the baby comes? So similar, actually, I love this. First of all, kudos, round of applause for being proactive. That's amazing. It's really setting up intentional time. So talk now, you know, when the baby comes, how often do we want to do date night? When the baby comes, how often do you want to go off on your own and do you time? Of course, this could change, right? We don't know what's going to go on. The baby could be like the best thing since sliced bread and sleep 12 hours a night and do nothing or it could have colic and you could be up 
straight for three weeks. Like we don't know, but you can say, okay, ideal world, every two weeks, I'm going to take two hours and go do yoga and go for a walk. And how can we set that up best for ourselves? So looking inward and saying, okay, what makes me feel like me? What are those ways of being? What are those activities? And asking your partner the same thing. And then, okay, what makes us feel like us? Maybe it's going out and trying a new restaurant. Maybe it's going to the theater. Maybe it's, you know, whatever it is. And ask yourself, okay, ideal world, how frequently are we doing that? Realistically with a newborn. And then that way you kind of have that plan going in and then you can adapt to whatever gets tossed your way. Our next category is sex. Someone asked, how much sex is had in a healthy relationship? However much you want. We actually just did a YouTube video on this. So I'll, I'll link it here. This is the most frequently asked question that we get everywhere. Whenever I do a Q&A, it's like the first question. I mean, at the beginning of the relationship, it's so like hot and heavy. And then as you go on, and that makes sense. Like everyone has a different sex drive. And I guess it depends on the partner. It does. It, it, and it, it's having a conversation. Um, we were able, I mean, I could talk about it for like 15 minutes, but we were able to get it down into like this four minute YouTube video. So I'll, I'll send you the link so you can link it. We'll link it. And then the last question, because I feel like this is such a hot topic right now, is does polyamory actually work? And there might be some people on here that don't actually know what polyamory is. And if you can just even explain your definition. So there's a difference between having an open relationship and being polyamorous, which is kind of a whole other, we can get into that another time. But polyamory is when you are in a relationship with someone and that is your primary partner. And you also have relationship with another person or other people. Your partner is fully in the know. This relationship could be with both of you. It could just be with one of you. It's multiple partners. The love of many is like literally the definition. Amory is love, poly being many. So love of many. I don't know if any of your clients are polyamorous, but do you find it, the relationships are successful? 100%. In fact, I've seen more successful polyamorous relationships sometimes than monogamous relationships. And I believe that that is because it requires a higher level of communication. And so the work gets put in to be able to do that. I think that if people who chose to be in monogamous relationships did as much work on their communication as people in polyamorous relationships, then they would be just as successful as well. But the amount of effort that has to go in to communicate and navigate a polyamorous relationship is quite large. I could only imagine. I can hardly take control of one relationship. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel, for being with us today. Honestly, just by literally being your authentic self, you are spreading so much light in this world. Thank you. It's such an honor. And literally, if anybody has any questions, any questions, 
my inbox is always open. You can slide into the DMs and you know this about me. Like I am very approachable. I want to answer your questions. You are not bothering me. Please reach out and let me know if you want clarification on something or just more on something. I'm here for you. Amazing. And I know you have a nice little vault of goodies. Can you tell the audience where they can find that? Yes. So I'm going to give you actually a a link, like a special link for everybody listening, but it's essentially a vault of communication scripts, of a masturbation 101 guide. We have coping mechanisms for anxiety. There are so many different things in there and I will give you the link and you guys can all get free access to it. And also check out the YouTube channel because we're, we're putting videos out every single week and they're answering questions very, very similar to the things that you're asking. Amazing. And last, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? So our website is rightwellnesscenter.com, W-R-I-G-H-T wellnesscenter.com. And my Instagram is the right Rachel. So the right, the W-R-I-G-H-T underscore Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L. Amazing. Well, we'll make sure to include those links so the audience can definitely follow you. I know you have so much wisdom to share with this world. Thank you so much again for being here with us today. Thank you, my dear. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. Remember, To stay inspired in between our episodes, you can head on over to Instagram and follow us at Your Soul Compass and at Wonderful Soul. For free meditations and mindfulness guides, you can head over to WonderfulSoul.com. And please don't forget to hit subscribe in your podcast player so you never miss an episode. And please, 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 if this content delighted you, leave us a note telling us on iTunes. I read every one of these personally and your feedback really helps me grow the show and produce the type of content you find valuable. Thank you, you beautiful soul, for dedicating time to your self-discovery journey. Not only are you contributing to your own mental and emotional well-being, but you are contributing to a healthier, more harmonious world and raising the consciousness of our planet. You are amazing and beautiful, just as you are. Thank you for being part of our journey, and thank you for letting us become part of yours.